Well, good morning again. As you've already heard, we are the second week into a new series that we've been doing over, well, that we're doing over the next five weeks. So this is number two. We've got three to go after this week, uh, which we've called Bold. And so what we're looking at is kind of really big, important realities from God's Word that are meant to grip us and shape us and embolden us and give us confidence, if you like, to live and speak for Jesus wherever he's placed us, in our communities, in our workplace, in our homes, even in our church together as we gather week by week. And so this morning we're looking at the love of God. That's got to be one of the biggest topics in all of Scripture. I hope you're on board with me on that one. And of course we're looking at, therefore, the most well-known and perhaps famous verse in all the Bible. John 3.16, I'm sure many of you could just recite it off by heart. And even if we went down to the uh, the shops in Gosnells, you might even get a few people who, if you said, what's the, what's, the, what's the most famous verse in all the Bible that you might know, uh, even if they've got nothing to do with church, some of them would probably be able to recite John 3.16 or at least part of it. It is the world, most well-known and perhaps the most famous verse uh, across the world. We're not going to look at just the verse by itself But nevertheless, that is true of John 3.16. But I think we're going to see this morning, and I hope you you can see, that it's also perhaps the most poorly understood verse in all the Bible. Uh, It speaks to our message today, looking at the topic of the love of God. But sadly, John 3.16, I think, has often been reduced to kind of a bumper sticker sentimentalism. A kind of a throwaway line that, we, that might roll off our lips without much thought at all as to what it's saying and why it's saying it and the context into which it's said. And so because it's become kind of a sentimental type thing, a throwaway line almost, as a result, I think it's, loose, it's lost at least to some degree its life-shaping power that God intends it to have for us. And so, friends, this morning I'm hoping that we will be able to recapture some of that as we open John 3 together, as we'll see that the love of God is so much more than sentimentalism. And as we, as we uh, see it, at least with some degree of clarity for what it is, it will both be captivating of us and compelling to us as we seek to live for him. That's what we want. That's what I'm praying for this morning. So let's read John 3 together. Uh, Maybe if you've got a Bible with you or a phone, you could flip that open there. Leave it open from John 3, verse 16. We're going to read through to verse 21, and we'll be pretty much staying in there for our whole time this morning. So yeah, keep it open. John 3, verse 16 to 21. I'm reading from the ESV. It's going to be on the screen, but keep it open because it'll disappear from the screen after we've read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, incredibly famous part of your word that we have open before us this morning. But we pray that its familiarity might not um, yeah, mean that we don't see it for what it is and grasp uh, what's being said here and that we don't go away unchanged by it. So please, Lord, bring it home to us by your Holy Spirit for your glory and for our good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at the love of God. But before we dive into this famous passage, we need to see something else first. And it's this, that all that we have here in this most famous part of Scripture about the love of God actually flows, first and foremost, out of who God is. All that we have here flows actually out of who God is. That before we can think about the love of God, we need to think about the God of love. Uh, 1 John, uh, the the same author in fact as John, uh, said this later in one of his letters, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now we're not going to spend much time here, but do notice what John doesn't say here. He doesn't say anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is loving. That's not what he says, is it? That's not the point he's trying to make. What does he say? Because God is himself love. This is about who he is as God, about his being in and of himself. And you might say, well, how does that work? And it it kind of pushes us in the direction of another belief we have about God. That is that God is trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's how he is love. He is this perfect relationship of harmonious love, eternal love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. And so God in and of himself is love eternally. So even from there, right, the love of God cannot possibly be sentimentalism. It's got to be more than that. At this point, what we see also is that the God himself and this concept of God being love means we're talking about something totally unique amongst all worldviews, amongst all faiths. It's totally unique. There's nothing else like this in terms of what Christianity says about God. Even if you take Islam, for example, I think uh, there are 38 references to uh, Allah's love in the Quran. About half of them are about the things that he does not love and the other half are about the things you need to do in order to be loved by him. But nothing about him in and of himself being love. And so out of the fullness of God's love, this perfect relationship between Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we can then come to his love for us. So let's go back there to verse 16. For God so loved the world. Uh, More helpfully, in this way, God loved the world. In what way? 
In what way did he love the world? He gave his one and only son in order that whoever or better everyone who believes might not perish but have eternal life. The God who is love in this way loved the world in that he gave one of the members of the Trinity, his son, so that whoever puts their trust in him, pins their hopes on him, turns to him, might not perish but have eternal life. Now, just in the light of that, it's in itself starting to be a little captivating, don't you think? The love of God. That God the Father would send the Son out of the fullness of his love It's captivating when you think about it, even just for a few minutes. And it becomes compelling in terms of how it might influence you, how it might shape you, how it might direct you, this kind of love. But that's not all that we have here. That's just verse 16 and 1 John 4 verse 8. There are actually layers to this, which is why I think John 3.16 is often misunderstood or at least partly understood and not fully understood. Have a look at three of them with me. What, 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 what kind of world was the world that God loved? What kind of world was it? And what did John mean when he said God so loved the world? Or in this way God loved the world? It's actually quite an unusual way for John to speak. John is a Jew. And Jews understood very clearly that God loved the children of Israel, his covenant people that he'd redeemed from slavery out of Egypt. But outside of that, no. No, outside of that are the Gentiles. Outside of that are the pagans. Outside of that are people who are defiled and idolatrous. But John here is saying God loved that world. So for John to say this is radical. One commentator put it this way, God's love is to be admired, and that's what we're trying to do this morning, Not because the world is so big and it includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. That's what's astonishing about the love of the God who we sung this morning is holy, 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 perfect in every way. And that's exactly what we see, isn't it, in verse 19 of this very passage. And this is the judgment. The light, which John 1 will tell us is Jesus, the light has come into the world. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, he has come. And people loved him? No. People love darkness because their deeds are evil. The world that God loves, the world that light came into, is not a world that loves God. It's not a world that loves the one who made them. It's not a world who loves the one who sustains them every moment, every breath. But rather it's a world that loves darkness and sin. And we're part of it. More than that, John describes the world actually as hostile to God. Did you see that there in verse 20? For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Everyone who does wicked things, that's all of us, by the way. Degrees, sure, but nevertheless all of us. Hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
See, that word hate's not very passive, is it? It's not like, oh, yeah, you know, God's good for you and, you know, that works for you, that's great, but not for me. No, no, it's hostility towards the God who is the light, who has come into the world. The third layer we see about the world that God loved us here is it's a world that's actually already condemned before him. And if you think about it, it's understandable, isn't it? If we don't love God but rather love sin, if we're hostile towards him rather than loving towards him, then we ought to expect perhaps some kind of repercussions, maybe his justice in light of that, his good and righteous just judgment, which is exactly what verse 17 says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What's the world going to be saved from? If you trust in Jesus? condemnation the point is it's already in place which is what he goes on to say whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already we're already outside of jesus sitting under god's just and righteous judgment and then lastly perishing verse 16 for God so loved the world, in this way he loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him, turns to him, trusts in him, should not perish. Should not. Should be rescued from the state of perishing. We're all perishing. We're all dying, not just physically, but spiritually as well, because of our sin and how it separated us from God. This is the world that God loved. A world that loves sin, that hates him, and is justly condemned and is perishing. In what way did God love the world? Through the Son he gave. Verse 16 and 17 again. In this way God loved the world. And so please notice, friends, that the love of God here is a rescuing love. It's a redeeming love. It's a love that delivers. He gave his only son. Verse 16. He sent his son. Verse 17. To save everyone who would believe in him. To save everyone who would turn to him. From living without him, from that hostility towards him. So to save everyone who would repent and believe, who would turn from that and turn to him. And I don't know whether you've noticed, but even just for a few minutes, do you notice how we just brush over this? How it just rolls off our lips with not a lot of thought sometimes. We just brush over it. He gave his only son. What? Really? Father gave the Son? For who? Now, I have four kids. Three of them are sons. To contemplate giving one of them to save others? To save you? Not to mention their, their unwillingness to participate in that gift. But sorry, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to do that. They're not going to do that. Neither of any of you are going to do that. So don't judge me for not doing it. 
But God did. The Father gave. And we're told in John later that the Son says, I lay down my life. He is not like some kind of you know, unwilling participant that God said, you're going. And he's like, oh, I don't want to, but I'm going to. No, the Son, because he is also fully God, was fully engaged in this love rescue mission to the world. He laid down his life. And the Spirit empowered him to do it. It's unique. There's nothing else like it. So that anyone who believes, anyone who will come and put their trust in him, will not perish, will not be condemned, but will have eternal life. Talk about reverse the ageing process. There's lots of creams out there that you can try to do that. You might be able to delay it a bit, but sorry, false advertising, you can't reverse the ageing process. Jesus died to give us eternal life. We might not perish. Let's not forget who we're talking about here. We've already, we've already touched on it. Don't, don't miss the wonder of who it was who came. The light has come into the world and where he came from. From heaven, from above. And even more so where he ultimately is sent to. We know where that was, right? Actually, John 15 tells you where it was, or 14 and 15 if you've got your Bible open there. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a Jew. And he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man that is Jesus, be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. There's one little word in there I want to emphasize for you this morning. The Son of Man, capitals, must be lifted up. Why must he be lifted up? Because that's what the love of God looks like. And so for the love of God to be displayed... He must be lifted up for our sins to rescue us. And he was lifted up. So notice that this love of God is written large on the pages of history. It's not hidden or tucked away in some mystery that you've got to kind of try and figure out that you you can't somehow discover. No, no, it's revealed publicly in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the love of God, friends. Last week we looked at this verse and it's just as appropriate for this week. In this is love. Not that we loved God. We've kind of established that already, right? But that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. What did we do to kind of make this happen? What did we bring to the table? Nothing. Nothing. It's where that old hymn kicks in, right? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. It's not quite true, that hymn. We do bring something. Our sin. 
not really great. It's not impressive. In fact, it's worthy of condemnation. But as we come to Jesus, we bring that. And he takes it away. In what way did God love this world? In the son he gave her the rescue that he brings. Verse 17 again makes it clear that God intended, what God intended in loving the world in this way, that the world might be what? Condemned? No. That the world might be saved. Condemned already, this is an intervention of Almighty God so that you, if you believe, might not be condemned but might be saved through him. This is a rescue mission. So, notice what happens when anyone receives the love of God in this way. What happens when anyone receives God's rescue by faith? Everyone who believes should not perish. Everyone who believes is not condemned. The one who does what is true comes to the light, which is another way of saying repentance and faith. They come to the light of the world who is Jesus and have their sins exposed and erased. This is the rescue the love of God brings. This is where God's love lands us as we take hold of Jesus by faith. And this is what God intends in the sending of his son. It's what he desires, that anyone who comes to him would be saved. Now, it's important we understand this idea of belief in John. I think we've demonstrated it many times before. I don't have one at the moment. I'm not going to go and physically demonstrate it. But belief in John is not mental assent. It's not agreeing with a set of propositions, although it does include that. A set of truths, it involves that yeah, must, I, must, I must be convinced of those truths. But believe in John, to believe in Jesus is to do what Dani is doing in this front row and what most of you are doing with that chair. What are you doing? You're resting in it. Hopefully not too much that you guys go to sleep. But nonetheless, you're resting in it. What's it doing? It's holding you up. You're depending on it. You're relying on it. You're believing in it you're trusting in it and if you were to stand next to it and refuse to sit in it because you weren't confident whether it could hold you then that would be unbelief the biblical idea of unbelief so the same is true here we're not to sit alongside the truth of the, or stand alongside the truth about Jesus and go yeah I agree with all that but oh, I'm not sure it can hold me up I probably need to add a little bit of my effort to what God has done in Jesus and so I'm not going to rest in it I'm going to admire it yeah it's a good looking chair I think it's strong but I'm not confident enough to sit in it that's not biblical belief. That's not saving faith, as we would describe it. No, saving faith is to sit in it. Now, even then, there's still the... Remember the guy who said, I believe, but help my unbelief? That's such an encouraging couple of verses, isn't it? So it doesn't mean we're fully confident, we've got it all sorted, know everything about Jesus there is to know, but we know enough to sit and rest in him, even though there's still some you know, outstanding things we need sorted. 
But nonetheless, that's what believing means here. For in this way God loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever does that, whoever trusts in him, rests in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, if that's not you yet, that could be you today. You could move from standing alongside and observing Jesus to entrusting yourself to him. How awesome would be that? Would that be today? How awesome would it be if the love of God so won you over in terms of what he's done for you in Jesus that you would come to the light trusting him with everything you are and everything you've done. For many of you, it is you today. So use the chair illustration just to lean back a little and realise what it means to be rescued by God through faith in Jesus. Can you get a sense of it? So good, isn't it? So wonderful that he would do that for you. Everything you need to hold you up and to lift you up one day into his presence. This is the love of God, friends. An old hymn puts it this way. A couple of old hymns this morning. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, put the tapes away, too big, boundless, and best of all, free. Free to us. Incredibly costly to him, right? So, How might this love of God change things for us? How might it shape our lives in a way that God intends? How might it help us in our boldness in living and speaking for Jesus? Well, just a couple of things for a few minutes. Firstly, it's captivating. Billions down through the centuries have been captivated by this. As the good news spread from what we saw in the book of Acts across the world, down through the ages, billions of people have been captivated by the love of God in Jesus. And people are still being captivated by it today. And so the reality is this, to live with boldness, we must also be captivated by it. We must be. You and I in our day-to-day need to be regularly refreshed and captivated by the love of God so that it might shape the very fabric of our lives. Moment by moment, that it might shape the worship of our lives, what it is that we're worshipping, what it is that we're adoring, what it is that we're desiring, what it is that we're pursuing, and that it might actually throw a light on the things that we shouldn't be pursuing and how pathetic they are often, 
how unsatisfying they are, how unfulfilling they are, in fact, how idolatrous they are. The love of God captivating us will do that for us and it will spur us on in living for Jesus. How wonderful to receive it, to experience it, and then to go that little step further, important step that I think we often stop short of, to rejoice in it. It's captivating also in terms of the sense in which it needs to make us think about still others who need to be captivated by it. The love of God ought to make us bold in reaching others. Why? Because such is the nature of it that it can powerfully captivate others. It actually can. Let me say this, friends, we have good news We have really, really, really good news. In fact, we have uniquely good news. There's no other news like this news, news of the love of God. It's not anywhere else. So if we can find ways of helping others see the love of God in Jesus, some will be captivated by it. Not everyone, but some will be. Others will, might receive it. Some will rejoice in it. Some will reject it. But it's captivating and it'll captivate other people. It doesn't have to be about our clever persuasiveness or us saying exactly the right words at exactly the right time for someone to get the gospel as long as they can see the love of God in Jesus, both in our lives and in our words, then some will be captivated by it. Secondly, it's compelling. It's compelling. Right? Though we rejoice in the love of God for us, it's compelling because we have to conclude by the words here in John 3 that it's not just for us. It is for us, but it's not just for us. God so loved the world or loved the world in this way that anyone who believes. So we need to get the news of God's love out to everyone so that anyone who believes might not perish. So you see, we're not only to be captivated by the love of God for us, we're also to be compelled by the love of God for others. And that's where it gets pretty challenging, right? Romans ten fourteen. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, please, as soon as you see the word preaching, don't go straight away in your mind to a church with someone up the front preaching. That's not how the word's used majority of the time. It's actually about how were they here without someone telling them. That's all of us. Right? Yeah, people have particular roles, but that's the idea here. So 
How will they be captivated by the love of God if they, without someone telling them about the love of God? It's compelling. How are we to be bold? By allowing the love of God to so captivate us that we're also compelled. But also it's compelling in a different way. It's compelling in the sense of convincing or persuasive. Uh, In two ways for us in terms of our boldness. We've already touched on the fact that it's unique and there's nothing else like it. No other worldview or faith has anything like it. It's totally unique. A God of love who out of his fullness sends his son to rescue us. So it's unique but it's reasonable. What you find over and over again when people start to get the gospel, the good news of Jesus and the truth that's here, people will say things like this. Man, it makes sense. It makes sense. It resonates with my life and what, I, what I'm experiencing in life and how life works or doesn't work, more to the point. So it's, it's compelling in the sense it's a compelling argument, a compelling belief. Not kind of mystical, it's not some ethereal thing. The people have got, got to do, you know, a spiritual triple backflips to kind of grasp. No, no. It's not something that requires people to switch off their brains. I mean, it requires more than human intellect, but it doesn't bypass it. It's compelling. So we don't need to be ashamed of it. We don't need to be apologetic for it. We can actually be bold about it with very, very good reason. And so we can find ways of getting this good news of the love of God out to others, helping people explore it, using their brains, but praying for them and they, as they do so that it's not just, more, it's not just you know, reason that's being applied. Some, will actual, some people will find it compelling and be convinced. But there's two big questions that we've got to answer first. And this is them. Are you captivated by it? Are you captivated by it? Or have you lost that sense some time ago? And you've seen today, I need to be freshly gripped by this. I've been distracted in 4,000 different ways for all sorts of reasons. And some of those are you know, valid reasons, right? The busyness of life, all the rest of it. Do I need to be captivated afresh? So that out of that will come a boldness. A humble boldness, not a proud, arrogant boldness, but a humble boldness. You know, someone, I think it was Martin Luther, said that um, reaching out to people is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Right? So good. Where to find love. And love like no other love. Oh, we must be captivated at first. You know? I'm guessing the beggar tasted the bread to see if it was completely you know, mouldy and awful before he went and told another beggar where to find it. I'm guessing that's why the psalm says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And then, from there, tell others Are you captivated by it? Is it compelling to you? Well, if it's become compelling to you, 
don't be surprised and don't lack confidence that it could be compelling to someone else. Can we pray? Father, thank you so much this morning for the privilege that we have had of opening your word in this particular part of your word. That is so clear. Reminding us that you have displayed your unique love on the pages of history in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. You have done it so that we might not be left in any doubt about it. We might, have, we might not have to, you know, like the, the, someone pursuing a relationship with the daffodil asking, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me. We, we don't need to be left in any doubt because you gave your one and only Son. Father, would you help us to respond? Would you help us, even in the light of your love, to freshly put our trust in Jesus this morning? Maybe for the first time this morning. Maybe just in a deeper way this morning than we have before. And not only that we would put our trust in Jesus and the love of God in him. Help us, Lord, to rejoice. To have joy in your love to rest in it, to rejoice in it, to revel in it and to love you more because of it from the very depths of our being. We confess that we've often got all sorts of other loves there. May yours trump them all. Reorientate them to their rightful place and get rid of the ones that are not pleasing to you. Father, we thank you today for your great and gracious love towards us in Jesus. Amen.